0: uncompromising we're both thieves relentless and the wrong man to cross you've got three days she's unyielding elusive i won't let you use me and cold as ice the game is over together they're devastating from the mind of john carpenter black moon rising rated r things that i've seen. is it my life or just something i dream resume noun one a summing up summary two a brief written account of personal educational and professional qualifications and experience after breaking up 1985 into five uneasy pieces, it's going to be so nice to take 1986 one month at a time. It's giving me a chance to refine the format and dig a little deeper. For instance, Mike's Amazing World of Comics remains my compass, but I stumbled upon a quirk. I had wrongly assumed that Mike broke down his shipping order by weeks, trained as I was on Wednesday shipments of all comics from Capital City and Diamond Distribution in my retailing days. Except when I think back, I'm not entirely sure those shipments always came on Wednesday. As I vaguely recall discussion or practice of Tuesday shipments, or Thursday on holiday weeks. Also, I'm not certain Heroes World's Marvel shipments arrived on Wednesdays, but I think they did. Anyway, in 1986, newsstand distribution was still prioritized, and I don't know about the comic shops, so there are varied street dates for different titles on a given week, even from the same publisher. Mike reflects those dates, but I'm not inclined to when I break my coverage down by weeks. Going forward, I'll make an effort to better and more accurately consolidate that weekly coverage. I don't know who decided on a samurai theme for the second issue of Elvira's House of Mystery, but yikes. Even in my uncritical child brain, I recognized this title was offloading moldy oldies under the cover of scant bridging material featuring the hostess with the mostest. Who thought Dennis Cowan was a good idea for the second cover, serving up Elvira as a prototype for Billy Tucci's she? Eh, they still suckered me into fishing it out of the Marauder Comics quarter bin. I've struggled to remember which specific issues of the Burn Incredible Hulk run that my brother bought, but at the very least, I can be certain about number 318. There's a fake out two page splash of an overly rendered Jade Giant seeing to attack Bruce Banner in his lab that I know I read at the time. This one also had Leonard Sampson battling a robot Hulk and the Hulkbusters in their leather vests with the fingerless gloves. That stands out. I'm also pretty sure I missed the wedding of Betty Ross and Bruce next issue because the bit where they continue the nuptials after Thunderbolt Ross shoots Rick Jones point blank with a 45 and Rick just watches the ceremony while bleeding out is too dumb to be forgotten. I specifically remember flipping through Secret Origins number one at a mall bookstore. I didn't get why a graying Superman was so gobsmacked watching his own origin story in a crystal ball. This was apparently the Golden Age Superman, and I knew from Crisis that there were two of them, but I thought the whole point of Crisis was to get rid of the spare Superman. Although redrawn by Wayne Boring and Jerry Ordway, I had Superman number one as a treasury edition drawn by Joe Schuster, and that was my preferred way of reading that material. Like who's who, Secret Origins served to reinforce. Force my bias against Doofy DC in favor of more realistic Marvel. I covered a lot of television from this period already, but the looser monthly schedule gave me breathing room to dig up some more stuff. I was never one for weekday television. Like most people homesick, there was a decent chance I'd tune in to The Price is Right for a little bit. I didn't have much knowledge of consumer pricing outside comic books, action figures, penny candy, and Virginia Slims, but you can't fault the presentation. Bob Barker was as genuine as game show host Scott, and they didn't call the lady presenters Barker's beauties for nothing. Who doesn't want to spin a giant wheel with dollar signs on it? If you're in hell... And have to have cheesy music loop to infinity, you could do worse than the price is the right theme. If Wikipedia is to be believed, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous had a daytime network slot in 1986. I always remember it in weekend afternoon syndication, but I guess this was a decade where CBS might give unapologetic avarice of spin. I always found its opulent displays tacky and disgusting, while Robin Leach's tawdry English accent came off creepy. I'd much rather dive into a Gilligan's Island rerun on UHF. For some reason, both my mother and grandmother ran the table on ABC soap operas. I'd visit family friends that could turn a channel, but especially after my grandmother's early retirement from the hospital cafeteria with a bum ticker. She'd just start with Ryan's Hope and stay planted on the couch with her tab and cigarettes. At least that one I vaguely recall, unlike Loving. All My Children had Queen of Daytime Susan Lucci as Erica Kane, though David Canary's dual role as the mean Adam Chandler and his meek twin brother Stuart stands out in my memory. Debbie Morgan had such a pretty smile and turned up in a lot of non-soap, TV, and movie roles when I was growing up. Cliff Warner always struck me as a wax figure come to life. I don't know how competitive soap operas on the same network were, but at least to me it felt like One Life to Live had middle child syndrome. Erica Slezak was on there forever. Lucci got all the kudos, but to me... The the late Andrea Evans as Tina Lord was the bigger minx. Six actresses played the role, including Kelly Maroney from Chopping Mall and Night of the Comet, but Evans owned it. While All My Children was competitive, General Hospital seemed to be the big dog of ABC Daytime, and I understand it's still being produced today. Having come out of hospital work, both my mother and grandmother especially gravitated toward it. Plus, the early 80s was dominated by Luke and Laura chatter. Future white queen Finola Hughes and her English accent made an impression. None of these soaps ever got my full attention, but I'd dip in for segments in between reading and play. Afterward, I might stick around for Phil Donahue, the only tabloid talk show in those pre-Oprah days. There wasn't much happening in primetime that we haven't already covered. I think I caught an episode of the Red Fox show before its swift cancellation. Nobody was looking for R.G. Bunker's place with Fred Sanford subbed in, I guess. The cute kid was played by Pamela Siegel, who did an episode of everything back then. But I probably remember her best from Night Court. Meanwhile, both the TV sitcom adaptation of Stir Crazy, which I only recall for the Patty LaBelle theme song, and the Dirty Harry on estrogen drama Lady Blue got cancelled. The quasi-continuation of The Enforcer, with notorious football jerk Fred Dreyer as Rick Hunter, would continue to be television's favorite wannabe Eastwood. Two escaped convicts wanted for murder, a crime they did not commit. Captain Betty Phillips, under orders from Washington to apprehend them. The real killer, a man with a tattooed hand, still walks free. Two nice guys with a price on their heads who just want to go home. I can't you while I to the polluted air. Walking on the wire, running out of time. There's no room Joe, a real American hero number 46, had everything it needed to come home with me. A Mike Zek cover depicting a Storm Shadow Snake Eyes team-up, and then the Rod Wiggum splash page had Zartan assuming Ripcord's identity, plus the dreadnought kicks him in the head for good measure. Oh, I'm down. And Who's Who on Cobra Island is a great battle issue, with an intriguing subplot about a high-ranking Cobra figure's kidnapped daughter. This was exactly what I wanted in my Joe comics. Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe number 5, had a boring cover by Paul Ryan, while reflecting the boring Warner draw on X-Men origin stories that my brother had managed to pick up in their original presentation. I'm sure they weren't exactly meant even then, but it's still a shame how he let those things be used by his dogs as toilet paper. It's a dubious achievement that it took founding X-Men's purity follies to make stories about Hulk versus the Circus of Crime and early solo Human Torch look exciting by comparison, another memorable Zack Zimmerman airbrush cover on The Punisher from when it was still a four-issue miniseries. It's clear at this point that Mike Zeck is straining against deadlines, with Inker John Beatty having having to carry more of the weight, a thankless role that lose the effectiveness of the book. The fit very much hit the Shan as the vigilante squad of corrupt Punisher wannabes come gunning for the real deal, without regard for anyone who might get in their way. The narrative followed a clear path, so I don't know what they were thinking in the issue's final pages. Maybe the plan was to have a dark ending that would lead to Punisher going full villain in some other hero's title, but the miniseries sold way too good? Anyway, expect issue 504 next month. I'm at a bit of a loss for why I bought Uncanny X-Men number 204 at the 7-Eleven still a little bit into Nightcrawler after finding his solo miniseries less than pleasing, and I do like June Brigman's art when she's doing moodier material, plus being inked by Wills Portacio couldn't have hurt. It reminded me a little bit of Paul Smith, who had been introduced to in a story featuring Kurt Wagner wooing the sorceress Amanda Sefton, and this issue detailed the dissolution of that relationship. Where the story loses me is when two-thirds of it are given up to some random chick that Nightcrawler has to save from Arcane's murder world. I can halfway buy the Danger Room, even when it goes full holodeck, but Arcade hosting a whole Westworld of killer robots in Manhattan was always a bridge too far across by suspension of disbelief. I'd skip half of 1986 after this. I still wasn't fully embracing popular music going into 1986, but some tracks broke through. Sly Fox's Let's Go All The Way, Tina Turner's One of the Living, Starship's Sarah, Mr. Mr.'s Kyrie, Whitney Houston's How Will I Know, Sheila E.'s Love Bazaar, John Mellencamp's R.O.C.K. in the USA, and James Taylor's cover of Every Day managed to pierce my bubble. Being the nuke-fearing, red-baiting 80s, I found Mike and the Mechanic's silent running on dangerous ground, especially evocative. Elton John's Nikita was likewise timely, and remains a pleasant little jam with a nice video. I reacted strongly to Hart's self-titled album overall, and was a big fan of their hit single These Dreams, which charts this month. In Excess Is What You Need came out, but I'm not sure that I was listening to it at the time. I don't think their Listen Like Thieves album got a lot of play in Houston, and suspect that when Kick broke big in 1987, their radio reached back to the single. I could be wrong, but I remember an absolute onslaught of In going into 1988. The Bengals album Different Light was released this month, with Manic Monday the debut single. An excellent start to a string of hits. I didn't have the CD myself, but my father did, and I happily dubbed a cassette copy off of him in the 90s. On the countryside, I recall Kenny Rogers' Morning Desire, Dan Seals' Bop, George Straits' You're Something Special to Me, Merle Haggard's I Had a Beautiful Time, Anne Murray's Now and Forever You and Me, and Alabama's She and I. The number one hits of the month were Lionel Richie's Say You Say Me, and Dionne Warwick and Friends' Age Benefit charity cover of That's What Friends Are For. Batman and the Outsiders is another concept that I was introduced to through the 1983 DC sampler. The two-page preview image was very Dark Knight heavy, with the Jim Aparo art and the foiling of Joker in Gotham City. With the exception of Black Lightning and maybe Metamorpho, I'd never seen these characters before this one group shot with a team fairly far in the background behind the Cape Crusader. The Brave and the Bold was my preferred Batman delivery system, and while I resented its cancellation to make way for another team book, I wasn't opposed to its existence, yet. The truth is that the title had very poor distribution in my area, So except for a possible missed opportunity at a mall bookstore or something, I never really had a chance to give The Outsiders one in their first volume. I think my buddy had some in the 1988 Grocery cycle Comics and I bought a few out of quarter bins circa 1989 through 91. I came to realize that as much as I loved Jim Aparo, I had issues with him drawing a team or at least co-creating and drawing this particular team. The cover of the final issue, number 32, made for an intriguingly spare house ad and nifty variation on the leader walking away from their team trope. While I enjoyed Mike W. Barr's Batman story More than Frank Miller, he originated and helped popularize The Dark Knight's modern, dysfunctional, mega-jerk characterization that permanently soured me to the character. I don't know if they ever paid off his obvious manipulation of his now-former team in this issue, and if it was any other group of heroes, I might have been mad about that. But The Outsiders are such gaudy losers, it feels like Batman coming to his senses to dump them. Anyway, this perspective is from reading this and other issues probably a decade removed from publication. Curiously, I would occasionally see copies of Adventures of The Outsiders, which continued the numbering of Bateau for six more issues of original material and reprints of the first eight issues of the Baxter format direct market only relaunch. Two other books had attempted that format shift, Legion of Superheroes and New Teen Titans. Tales of the Legion of Superheroes got a dozen new stories and 29 issues of newsstand reprints. Tales of the Teen Titans got 18 issues of new stories and 33 newsstand reprints. They were actual popular books with fan followings that sustained them, despite the idiocy of the DC gambit. Even with Alan Davis' art and a general curiosity, curiosity about what the Outsiders' whole deal was, I was never compelled to part with the 75 cents to indulge a single one of those rare newsstand copies. Star Comics' Star Wars Droids No. 1 credits John Romita with art. What a travesty that was. I know I encountered this book about some little blonde brat boy hanging out with C-3PO, R2-D2, and some broke-ass Transformers. It's possible I bought it, but I think in hope my half-brother did. Everything about this one repelled me. The epic imprints ElfQuest No. 9 was a bottle Episode, with the characters mostly in a few locations talking about their past, plans, and so on. I know that I read it, but I didn't invest enough to retain much, which is probably why I wasn't a regular reader. The art was pretty, the premise was fine, and I think I liked that there were a lot of words. More bang for the buck, right? I recall flipping through Thor number 365 through 366, part of the well remembered Frog Thor arc, but my disinterest in the Thunder God and having missed the first chapter had me leaving it on the shelf as a novelty. I was talking with someone the other day about why the creator team that launched X-Factor were dumped well within the first year of the title. I think it was an editorial dispute with Jim Shooter over the reveal of the big bad of the overall arc, but also I know I read number three out of Mutant Obligation, and there's yet another issue where my recollection of the story and its emotional resonance are absolutely nil. Plus, this was the one where they got rid of all the Beast's animalistic body hair to restore him to his roots. He won't be played by Nicholas Holt for decades, so nobody but Bob Layton wanted that. I was introduced to Firestorm in the first DC Sampler, and I became more familiar with the Nuclear Man in the Superpowers cartoon, but it didn't have a lot of exposure to him in comics. Someone had the idea of doing a multi-issue crossover with another hero of the new DC, but I missed the first part in Firestorm number 46, so I was a bit lost in Blue Devil number 23. It had a classic Marvel-style Paris Cullens, Gary Martin cover, so I went in expecting a George Tuska fill-in, but it was still Alan Kupperberg While that's certainly the better option, I was getting a bit tired of copperberg and the brittle inks of Bill Collins didn't help. This is the one where the heroes fight thanks to an illusion where Firestorm sees Blue Devil in a more demonic form, and it's not hard to think how much better Cullens would have pulled this off. Also, it's a supervillain team-up with only the Bolt representing Blue Devil, and the rest are lesser lights from Firestorm's Rose Gallery, a risible lot. I think I liked this leg fest as a kid, but not in a rush to revisit today. Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number 113, had some nice art by Bob McCloud, and a story about that time Aunt May dated a more elderly Bernie Goetz, whose subway vigilanteism came home to the senior center in the form of gangbanger terrorism? I do wonder what dark secrets we never learned about Uncle Ben, because Meg just goes from one bad bow to the next. Peter David was still trying to make this the Rip From the Headlines gritty Spidey title, but I was finding my interest waning in the post-Senator stories. I skipped the following month's fill-in issue. By one summer day, those big brown eyes my way, oh I wanted you forever I'm not one that gets around, swear my feet stuck. And though I never did need you before I said hello, hello Mary Lou, goodbye heart Goodbye heart, sweet Mary Lou, I'm so in love with you I'm in love with Mary Lou, I knew, Mary Lou That we we never part, so hello Mary Lou original Howling movie poster scared the dickens out of me, with its claws tearing through an unknown material, while a woman's screen mouth can be seen underneath. I don't know how or why I was exposed, but it was scarring. It was not, however, the first film in that franchise that I would see. Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf, got a limited release in December, but I bet most people saw it as a swift turnaround of VHF and UHF television. I'm not sure which it was for me, but I know that it was one of my early horror movie viewings after actually seeking out that genre instead of cowering before it. And it was a good choice, because it is indeed horrible and not remotely scary. Sybil Danning's breasts and a werewolf orgy are both prominent, but it's too incompetent to be sexy either, and I'm sure some edits and blurring would have allowed it on late night basic television. It's extremely boring nonsense and features the Captain America from the 1970s TV movies, but the main thing that sticks with me is the earworm of a goth New Wave theme song. I think is the best thing about the entire franchise. I think think we caught Black Moon Rising at the Dollar Show, but it might have been on VHS a year or so down the line. It's a little-known action thriller about a heist involving a supercar that can jump between buildings. Yeah, I know that's a barely notable aside in the Fast and Furious franchise, but we actually felt the need to explain the science fiction physics of the feat back in the day. Tommy Lee Jones is the driver, Linda Hamilton the femme fatale, and Robert Vaughn the villain with Bubba Smith as the heavy. I haven't revisited it in years, but I recall liking it and the story was by John Carpenter. Might be worth digging up. The Clan of the Cave Bear Girl Hannah's follow-up to Splash was a notorious flop. The dialogue-free, painted caveman epic earned back only one-ninth of its budget, but the imagery was indelible. I want to say they showed this in class one day, probably an in-service, or babysitting before grades came back ahead of the summer. If you can believe it, Iron Eagle preceded Top Gun rather than ripping it off, and they managed to put up three sequels over the next nine years. These things always seemed to be on UHF Sundays, but never sucked me in. So weird to hear Queen's One Vision in a trailer, And not only isn't it Highlander, but that hasn't even come out yet. Down and Out in Beverly Hills is an interesting one. I'm not sure if we saw it theatrically or on VHS. It was the first movie I watched with Richard Dreyfuss, Bette Midler, Nick Nolte, or Elizabeth Pena, all whom would frequent the rest of the decade's viewing. Plus, Little Richard had a small role. It was a hugely successful comedy with surprising queer and trans representation for the time. And it seems to have gone right down the memory hole. I remember the Mad Parody better than the actual film. And I doubt it's come up in a conversation for over 30 years. Speaking of Little Richard... Richard. He joined Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Sam Cooke, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ray Charles, the Everly Brothers, James Brown, Buddy Holly, and Fats Domino in being the first musical acts inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this month. I didn't cheat, and I didn't lie, so her leaving took me by surprise. Just a note on the table, saying we're through. At first I went crazy, so it took me some time But I finally read between the lines It's not what I did, it's what I didn't do in the final week of January, I wouldn't see Atari 4 Special No. 1 until the Grocery sack of comics, and the Odd Quarter Ben, plus it would take another 35 years or so before I finally read the series. I was getting past my Master of the Universe period when the first Star Comics issue was released, but my brother bought IT and the recent Motu magazine with the Earl Norum covers besides. The New Mutants number 39 was another issue my brother bought and I only skimmed, owing mostly to the Art Adams White Queen cover. On the book beat, L. Ron Hubbard died. I hadn't yet heard of Scientology, but its dollars had allowed the author to purchase a lot of ad spots for his pulp sci-fi series Battlefield Earth and the erupting volcano of pseudo-intellectual pap that was Dianetics. At least the Battlefield Earth novels had some sweet airbrush covers that wouldn't have been out of place painted on the side of a van that shuttled kids to Trek conventions, but the homicidal high- around dianetics made it seem like a new gospel at least back in my day gullible cultists were literate and had a cogent shared delusion guided by a publicly recognized quack i stumbled upon the book series wizards warriors and you and thought it might have been one of those DD solitaire knockoffs i played the book jacket made no mention of needing supplies though so it's probably more of a choose your own adventure knockoff where your choices started with whether to be a wizard or a warrior anyway the logo is what sticks out most in my memory from checkouts at the public library with the covers of Book 2, The Siege of the Dragon Riders, and Book 9, The Dragon Queen's Revenge, being the likeliest candidates. Finally, on January 28th, the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up during liftoff. It is the great, where were you when moment of my life. They stopped class and wheeled in a TV cart so we could watch coverage on the news. Krista McAuliffe was said to be the first teacher in space, and though it was a stretch, I think everyone in school felt like we had lost one of our own. I guess they were just taking the TV from class to class, and afterward we sat for a long time in stunned silence. A few years later, I moved to Nevada, attending a school that to me was a bougie, sprawling campus. The school was set on a hill, and they'd built the gym area in a recessed courtyard. Along the edge of that recess, they'd placed a plaque commemorating the tragedy. To my knowledge, McAuliffe had nothing to do with Nevada, so my perception of the plaque swiftly shifted from touching to just another example of the area's moneyed excesses. Said, say a prayer for me She threw her arms around him Whispered, God will keep us free They could hear the riders coming He said, this is my last fight If they take me back to Texas They won't take me back alive There were seven Spanish angels at the altar of the sun They were praying for the lovers in the valley of the gun When the bells stopped and the smoke cleared, there was thunder from the throne seven Spanish angels took another angel home. So folks who wanted to see our resume included the 21st Century Boys, Dr. Ange, Between the Pages, Billy Hines, On My Way to Bluer Skies, Brad Leonard, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, Chris Leiden, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, Dr. Irving Forbush, Donovan Morgan, Ed Moore, History of Comics on Film, I Was Joe Is, The Irredeemable Shag, JMT Productions, Kailash, Jawalamolki, Keith G. Baker, Master Yoda, Maxo, Randy Caldwell, Sadden Tights, 101 Podcast, Speak Comics, Speaker of the House Kirk's Spencer, Superbound, Bound, Talk Nerdy to Me, and Tim Price, the Podcrasher, who added, I think I had all six of those issues, referring to the album art for the episode. Searching my mind for some to reveal. what thoughts are fair?